From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Biden administration is seeking $30 billion in emergency funding to avoid a government shutdown in the likely event that Congress won't pass fiscal 2022 spending bills by the end of the month. More than $2 billion would go to the Defense Department to provide transportation for Afghans who are waiting for clearance to enter the United States. The administration expects to bring up to 65,000 Afghans to the U.S. by the end of the month and an additional 30,000 next year. The Defense Department has formed a working group to identify barriers to supply chain monitoring. Over the past year, the Pentagon said that challenges to get critical medical resources during the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the need to strengthen its supply chain. The Office of Industrial Policy will oversee the two-year study and will identify ways to mitigate problems. The office plans to submit a report next summer on its findings. The Pentagon's National Geospatial Intelligence Agency announced it will continue to help track and combat wildfires in the West. Under a pilot program called Firefly, started in 2019, the agency provides imagery from satellites, drones, ground sensors, and cameras to map the location and shape of fires. NGA provides firefighting agencies updated maps every 15 minutes where fires are rapidly spreading. Hundreds of presidentially nominated Senate-confirmed positions remain vacant to date. The vacancies in the Pentagon can adversely affect the execution of long-term national defense strategy. That's according to retired Air Force Colonel Wesley Hallman, a senior vice president for strategy and policy at the National Defense Industrial Association. Wes, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So what are those Senate-confirmed positions that are vacant that you're most worried about? Well, and that's a, that's a perfect uh, starting-off question. There are 61, roughly, uh, uh, positions that are presidentially nominated and Senate confirmed in the Pentagon. And right now, 22 of those remain without nominees, so well over a third. And the ones that, that I would say for our association, uh, you know, and very uh, important to the defense industrial base are those positions within the uh, Undersecretariat for Acquisition and Sustainment. And right now, all four presidentially nominated Senate confirmed positions in that uh, Undersecretariat are not just unfilled, but don't even have nominees. So this is now a, pro- a problem from the White House. It's not really on the Senate side for confirmation. Correct. So that, that's 100% correct. But realize that, that part of that process of coming up with a nominee is somebody that you think can get through that get Senate through. process. So I wanted to ask you about Senator Elizabeth Warren, because she had put a hold on some um, upper-level defense um, positions because she wants to end the revolving door which is between public service and then going into defense contractors. Isn't that a valid concern? It it can be a valid concern, but remember, this is how our founding fathers set up our government. Our government was supposed to be, you know, experts and people who wanted to serve coming into government, serving for a time period and then leaving and bringing that expertise, bringing that viewpoint, bringing those skills to the job. And I will say that previous appointees with industry experience have done wonderful things 
for our for our national defense, our national security. Uh, two really important ones would be, uh, you know, just recently, uh, we had our Undersecretary of Acquisition and Sustainment, uh, uh, Undersecretary Ellen Lord. She was very, very effective. I will say that she carried the water of the Defense Department and its priorities uh, with an iron fist. And we all appreciated that. She would come to meetings, she would be prepared. She knew what drove industry and she knew what she could get from industry to provide uh, capabilities to war, the warfighters. And I will say on the other side of the aisle, and in an earlier time period, Norm Augustine did many of the same things. You know, uh, everybody knows uh, Augustine's rules. Uh, the fact is those were, those rules and the way he, he used those in his senior positions in the Department of Defense benefited our warfighters. So the Senator lifted her hold, um, but she said, look, you can't go and work at a defense contractor for four years. Yes. What do you think of that? Well. Uh, realize that that is, I would say, uh, well beyond what other senators are required to do when they leave office, which is only two years. Same with uh, 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 other senior members in Congress and senior members in the Pentagon as well. I will say that uh, what you're asking these to do, folks to do is, is really come into the government, work twice as hard for half as much and then not be able to go back and earn a living for themselves, for their families, uh, et cetera. And I would say that that's excessive. And, and I will say that also the, uh, uh, the data doesn't really point to that it's this very large problem that's impeding our national security. I would say it's exactly the opposite. The other thing is that you are disincentivizing service to our nation of the people that you do want to come in with, with again, important skills, important networks, et cetera, that will benefit our warfighters and our nation's security over time. That also includes a diverse, a diversity of thought, a diversity of perspective, and, and also gender diversity. If you look at senior leaders within our defense industrial base, uh, we have some, uh, some, uh, uh, amazing women that are leading some of our biggest corporations. Uh, why you're not considering these folks because they happen to come from industry is beyond me. If you're just going to look at academia, the think tank world, you're going to have only one set of perspectives and that will leave blind spots that I think will be disadvantageous to us. So it's currently um, two years and only for senior defense officials that have been involved in major acquisitions. Do you think that that's fair? I I think that's, uh, you know, some would say that's unfair. I, I think that aligns with other recruit, recusals in other departments and also within Congress. So I think, I, I think if there's a, common, uh, there's a common baseline of what that recusal should look like and also underneath those recusals, what are the, what are the, uh, the defining terms on that? Can you still consult with, uh, with a company but not actually lobby your, your previous uh, contacts or those that you worked with, I think that's that's a valid way to to mitigate some concerns of uh, conflicts of interest and otherwise. But I think when you go to four years or you go, you can't even you know uh, utter the breath industry uh, under your breath industry. I think that's the wrong answer. Which is, I, I would imagine that that's kind of difficult because that's what their experience is in. Where else are they going to work except in the defense industry? It, exactly, and that and that's the problem. Is uh, 
you again, you want that experience back on the other side too, because you want them coming back to industry and saying, this is where the department's going, or these are the capabilities that are required. You want that, that flow of information and experience both ways. I mean, there's exchange programs at more junior levels to, to get industry and government experience for rising executives so they know what's driving the other side. So when you sit across from a table, you can have a, a beneficial negotiation that again, ultimately ends up with better capabilities to our warfighters. All right, well, Wes, let's hope that that happens. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, an overload of classified information risking defense space capabilities. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how overclassification could undermine national security. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. There's a debate about how much information about space capabilities should stay classified and how much the U.S. should reveal. Overclassification of space systems undermines the Pentagon's ability to combat risks of mission failure during a crisis. That's according to Chris Stone. He's senior fellow for space studies for the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Research Center. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So explain, because you had said that there's a, a, a link between um, classification and deterrence. Mm -hmm. What is that link? Well, there are three main components of deterrence. There is a capability or a weapon system that you create a threat with. You have the willingness to use that threat, and then you have the ability to communicate that threat to an adversary. And with overclassification in the space world, you have a situation where um, most of our stuff is so highly classified that we're not even allowed to talk about it amongst ourselves if you're not cleared into it, if you're not read into it. And so if you can't talk about it amongst yourselves, you clearly can't tell your adversary that you have it. So it makes it very difficult for you to have any sort of deterrence on space attack if you can't say we have Project X that can do X, Y, and Z if you attack us. But isn't it a good thing to classify information because we're trying to keep that, our capabilities and our technology away from our adversary? Absolutely. There, it's not classification that is bad. Classification is good. You need certain levels of classification depending on the sensitive information and how much damage it could be done to the country if it were to be leaked to the adversary. What we're talking about is when you have a classified system that is so classified that you can't even talk about it amongst yourself. So here's an example. In the air domain, we have the B-21 bomber. Everyone knows there's a B-21 bomber and that's a long-range strike weapon in the air domain but we don't know necessarily what it looks like necessarily, how it flies, what its components are, what kind of weapons it carries, but we know it's a long-range strike bomber, so you can talk about it. In the space, I mean, we don't even have that kind of information that we can share with the adversary. We just say we have stuff, and having stuff is not necessarily a, a credible threat in the minds of our adversaries. And it would also be linked to funding, because if you can't really talk openly about, hey, this is what we need and this is how much it costs, you know, you can't just say, trust me, we need it. Right, and that's another problem, as, as you mentioned. In, in the process, the Space Force has to articulate because everybody has to argue for their piece of the defense budget. And if all you're doing in, in a defense budget meeting is saying, as you say, trust me, we have something, this is important, it's very difficult for you to win over people who aren't cleared into the program that your program is credible enough to move up the priority chain. So who decides what gets classified, what gets declassified? What's that process? 
It's, it's a very complicated process. There are several layers of, of classification authorities and declassification authorities within the Department of Defense uh, from the president on down. And usually the process entails a bunch of coordination of people who have equity and that specific information being outed or not outed. Sometimes a senior leader can say enough is enough, we're just going to open up this information to the public or uh, to our allies at a certain situation like that. But it, it's complicated and so... I mean, can he or she just say that and declassify something? The, the president has the authority to do that. Um, but uh, nobody uh, else below that? There are declassification authorities below that, but you have to coordinate it amongst people with equities. Otherwise, people will get upset because there's a lot of different interrelations with programs that you may release information on one program that might give information about another program. So you got to be very careful with how you declassify to make sure that you don't um, cause any problems with other issues that you want to keep secret. Sure. So are you recommending that we change that process or do we just simply speed up the declassification process? I think it would be good if, you, if there was a way to, to speed up the declassification process. So for example, if it's, uh, if it's a program like in the space program where you have to have a credible deterrent with, that that should be something that moves to the head of the line a little bit faster than say something that you want to keep secret and people are just talking about opening it up more. Um, but yeah, speed, speed is the key, especially if, if the Space Force wants to be credible as a deterrent force, they have to have the ability to communicate about their things. So do you think that this is, uh, this is a problem specific to the Space Force, or do other services suffer from the same overclassification, in your opinion? It's not just a Space Force issue. Other services have similar problems, but it's, it's really a, a big deal for the Space Force because since the 1950s, space has been a very highly classified realm of operations, and for good reason. Uh, but, but now that we're in a warfighting domain situation where you have to have a credible deterrent and that requires communication of capability, we need to change things a little bit to make it more uh, more effective. And what about when we're working with allies and with international partners? How does the classification system work when you're trying to share information, even among services within our own country? Well, there, there are special ways that we work with our allies on that. We have releasable, like releasable 5As for the main allies. We have releasable to Australia. We have all these different RELs, as we call it. Um, that in some ways is a little bit uh, is challenging as well, but if it's important enough to our leadership and the government, we usually can make that happen with our allies. It's, it's when you get to public release that becomes even more challenging. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much. We appreciate you coming in. Thank you very much. You can find a link to Chris's article at govmatters.tv. Coming next, the Office of the Future at the Air Force creates a new way to work Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the colonel in charge of the project about combining the benefits of telework and collaboration. I'll be right back. The Air Force's Installation and Mission Support Center has an initiative called the Office of the Future. Its goal is to combine the benefits of telework with the benefits of collaboration. Colonel Kevin Montovani is Vice Commander for the Air Force Installation and Mission Support Center, which is part of the Air Force Materiel Command. He's leading the Office of the Future Transformation. Colonel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Good morning. So what did your team realize um, during the pandemic that led to this new office structure? Well, uh, 
prior to the pandemic, uh, we, we, our headquarters is around 3,900 people, mostly uh, administrative office type work goes on, but every single person had a cubicle, one person, one desk. Uh, what we saw during the pandemic, you know, for, uh, for health protection reasons and to reduce the risk of transmission, almost everybody in our headquarters was at home teleworking, uh, as most of America had to do at various points in time if they could. What we found over the last year was that we could be absolutely successful working from home, utilizing things like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, uh, different virtual platforms, uh, and, and we didn't miss a beat. So looking forward post pandemic, we said, hey, why don't we take advantage of this and take some of the best lessons learned that we uh, put into practice during the pandemic from telework, which gave everybody flexibility to uh, you know, do some work, uh, go for a jog, uh, make lunch for the kids, and then go back to work while, while you're still in your office, so to speak at home, but then combine it with what was best about pre-pandemic work, which was the collaboration that you can only get from in-person work. So we're calling it a hybrid approach and it's uh, office of the future, not new to Silicon Valley and tech industry and other people, but it's, it's quite new for us, it's radical. So what do you see as the fundamental difference then for the office of the future and, and the benefits of, of this new style of workplace? Well, a, a few things. Uh, giving employees the, the flexibility to work where they want to work from, be it if they want to come into the office every single day because they feel that that's where they're most productive, um, so be it. We'll accommodate that with hotel space. Uh, if they feel that they can be even more productive, which is some of the feedback we're getting from a lot of people uh, working at their home office, their desk, uh, then, then do that. Uh, but maybe uh, what we're thinking is do it 50% of the time. So 50% of the time you're gonna come into the office, but it's not gonna be the normal office. You're not gonna just come in to sit and do emails, which a lot of office workers do. We wanna have collaborative environment uh, and, and teaming events set up for the days that you come in. Colonel, I, I, un really, uh, I understand that you're gonna be ripping out the cubicles and putting in yes. cafe style seating. That sounds appealing. It, it does, you know, uh, I like to say that when I've gone into the office in the past, you can see the earth curving as the cubicle walls go into infinity. Now we've ripped out a whole bunch of those cubicles and it's just open, open with couches, stand up uh, tables and desks. So how did you design the new office space? Did you bring in consultants? Uh, we, we, you know, we, we took some field trips. So we're, we're pretty close to Austin. We went to Austin and visited uh, something they call the Capital Factory, sort of like a WeWork for tech industry startups. Absolutely open and collaborative. We saw that. We, uh, we spoke with some consultants and uh, architectural engineering firms. And, and then I have some experience going around in Silicon Valley during a fellowship and seeing uh, what, what cutting edge companies were doing similar to this. Any difficulties so far in implementation or in getting buy-in from senior leadership? <laughs> I, I think that the buy-in was natural because we're doing it now. Two or three years ago, the buy-in would have been an uphill slog uh, to convince everybody that, hey, we want to work from home and only come into the office every once in a while. So that's leadership. I would say that for, for the masses of, uh, of our team, our, our airmen, uh, they're excited about it. But a lot of them are nervous because what is it going to be like? I'm not going to have a wall full of diplomas and pictures. Uh, there, there's just going to be a hotel space that if I can sit in uh, for the day, that's going to be it. And then I have to bring my stuff home. So it's different. 
What about classified material? Do you, I mean, certainly you can't do telework in that case, right? Um, in general, no. In general, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to have to come into a secure vault to do their work. Um, there are technologies that would allow uh, an individual to bring home a secure uh, workstation uh, so that they can do things, but there, there's a whole lot of complicated factors to that. Office of the Future could probably accommodate that in the future, but right now we're really focused on the unclassified uh, work that we do. So what kind of data will you be collecting to see if this setup is working or not? Absolutely. Well, I like to say that we're experimenting right now. We're going to, well, right now, because of the health protection conditions, we're not all back into the office. So this hasn't really begun. It's going to begin when we can safely do it. Once we start bringing in a, a lot of people, we're going to collect utilization uh, data on the permanently assigned offices, because there'll still be some of those, uh, on the hotel spaces, the team rooms, the open collaborative environments that we're building. And if some are not being used, well, then we're just going to get rid of them. And if there's a, an increased demand for the others, we're going to make more of those. So it's an experiment uh, that we hope to, to, you know, robust as we go. Um, Colonel, in the 30 seconds we've got left, do you think other military branches or even civilian agencies should give this a shot? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I read a lot in the news about how Americans are, have gotten used to working at home uh, over the last year and a half. Uh, and you see it in the tech industry and you see it on Main Street USA. Uh, for the other military organizations, absolutely. Give this a try. Call us at AFIMSC. We can help you uh, get started. We can help you uh, avoid some of the growing pains that we've seen. Uh, and then uh, it's an experiment. You know, I, I don't think we have it right uh, with our 1.0 design, but I think we'll get it right. All right, Colonel, uh, best of luck to you and send us some pictures once you're done, okay? You bet, Mimi. Thanks. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on LinkedIn. Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.